is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the Welcome to the Curbsiders. This is a this is an episode that's going to have very little editing and probably be somewhat of a mess. <laughs> no, that's that's terrible to say. <laughs> it's going to be awesome, and we're going to quickly talk about our favorite teaching points from today. We are recording this live at ACP 2018. #IM2018. Is that the right hashtag, Stuart? I, I believe so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's the one I've been using. <laughs> We are going to rapid fire run through some of our favorite teaching points today, starting with Dr. Brigham, uh, updating us on some health policy papers that ACP put out and was talking about a lot today. Right. So I went to the health policy update, the initial one that we had here at ACP, and the specific push that I wanted to uh, talk about briefly was about the patients over paperwork push that's been adopted by the Centers for Medicaid Medicare Services. So this is a really harkens back to to. Um, what really underpins the reason why I went in the healthcare administration, physician administration in the first place, and that is trying, trying to remove barriers that are impacting and, and impeding patient care. So ACP has a link that I've tweeted uh, on my uh, wait, Twitter, Twitter, tweet stream, whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, tweet stream. At, yeah, you're right. It's tweet stream. Is it, is it really? <laughs> so at Brigham SK, you can look at the link there and fill out MySpace. The, yeah, that's right. Fill out the survey. Um, it's not a, it's not a MySpace survey, but, uh, just to give them some idea of what administrative burden that you're dealing with in your, in your own practice. The, the other big, the other big paper that ACP put out was a position paper on, um, social determinants of health. And Dr. Williams, would you care to tell the audience what that, what exactly that means? Since you're so eloquent. (laughs) Yeah, no, just, just chuck that one right to me like a hand grenade. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. I feel like all, we were talking about this earlier off air and I, I, I kind of liken social determinants of health to talking about cancer in terms of it's, it's sort of this broad amorphous term that is actually encompasses a bunch of um, specific things. So I don't think it's, it's hard to talk about as a specific topic. I think if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. And, but ACP has put out a bunch of recommendations in terms of how it should be dealt with and from a policy level, from an educational standpoint, from an interprofessional standpoint. And so the paper's instructive to read, um, but it's basically the push is more for recognition of it as an issue as opposed to sort of specific guidance on very, very narrow topics. Um, and you were there for a lot of it. What, what kind of takeaways did you have? I thought that so Dr. Sarah Candler and Dr. Karen DeSalvo were doing a lot of the talking. Dr. Candler was saying that she had gotten training just by luck of where she trained. She had gotten a lot of training about this. So she just sort of even knowing to ask about it and knowing to look for it was a big part of it. It's like knowing there's a problem is, is a big, is a big part of the battle. And I think by putting this statement out, ACP was basically trying to say like, we need to pay attention to these things. Uh, Dr. Jack Endy is the current ACP president. He was on the panel as well. And he made the point, yes, we know what medications to give patients, but if we're not addressing these social, like things like what zip code does a patient live in? And based on their zip code, do they have access to food? Do they have access to money to pay for their medications? Then their medications aren't going to work. So we, we do have to pay attention to these things. And in general, what, what the ACP is hoping, 
what the speakers were saying. They're hoping that that this will draw attention and that people will start developing novel ways to solve these problems at the local level because there's unique issues. Now, what, what, what was that that you're talking about before we started recording? We said someone's temperature could be normal, but their their hair is right, on fire. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, do, uh, Dr. DeSalvo had said that if if you can look at someone and be like, oh yeah, this person has an average temperature, but you're not paying attention to the fact that their hair is on fire and their feet are in ice water. So you have to, you can't just look at like a city and be like, oh yeah, that city, their, their average blood pressure is doing okay. But meanwhile, there's like a population within that city whose blood pressure is everyone's like 200 over 150. So yes. It, that, that that's was the new kinda, normal. That's the new normal. Yes. Yeah. There were a couple. We were talking about this also. There are a couple of phrases thrown out where we all just kind of start writing them down because they're so great. And some of them. One of them was that zip code is more important than genetic code, which I just loved. Um, Doctor DeSalvo said a couple of times, "Social determinants of health, otherwise known as life," which I also <laughs> I think is great. And then all of the panelists made the same point that even just asking about the various uh, barriers to healthcare and social determinants of health strengthen the physician-patient relationship. And there's even some studies that suggest just by asking and recognizing and engaging with the patient in that way, with not even fixing the fundamental problem, you could actually increase adherence and increase um, uh, the, the therapeutic relationship. So I thought it was a really, it kind of harkens back to the fact that just being aware of it and thinking about it and talking about it is a crucial first step. So, so is your zip code more important than 23andMe? Okay. No, we're not going to get into that. Nice, <laughs> nice transition there. The, uh, we, were, we were at the multiple small feedings of the mind session where uh, one of the speakers was talking about that one of the most common Christmas gifts this year was 23andMe or some of the other genetic testing. And how do we handle this? I personally don't have a great answer for this. So what, what this highlighted for all of us was basically that we need to have a geneticist on the show to talk to us as primary care clinicians, like what can we do to counsel patients that are coming to us with like, hey, I'm BRCA positive on my 23andMe. What do I do with that? Because I think, uh, and there's other things. I think, oh, my my big take home point there, Paul, I think 23andMe can tell you if uh, you're likely to have back hair and uh, also if asparagus, if asparagus, if asparagus will make your pee smell, which which is not universally, it doesn't happen to everybody, which we've talked about we, on the show before. We are we're not going to go back to that one. <laughs> I I think one of the interesting things, you know, if you go back and they they had this beautiful chart on the growth of direct direct to consumer genetic testing, and just in January 2013, they were down at 200,000. Uh, cumulative customers, it goes all up to 1 million in 2016. It was just crazy. Insane. It's it's blowing up. Same The same speaker, and uh, Stuart, could you tell me what her name was? I feel like we should mention her name. Uh, <laughs> Which one? We'll, we'll, I'll, edit, I'll edit around okay. this, maybe. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Anyway. so it, I'm finding it now. She was from MGH. So this is Dr. Katrina Armstrong. She is the physician-in-chief at MGH, and uh, she was talking about how breast density when you when you get this report for women with heterogeneously dense breasts or homogeneously dense breasts you should calculate a risk score to determine if they need supplemental testing she did acknowledge that there is it's not yet known if supplemental testing would actually improve outcomes but at their institution the current recommendation is to is to consider it if you calculate this score so this risk tool Stuart, can you tell us about it yeah it's at cancer.gov forward slash bcr oh bc risk tool so breast okay. cancer risk tool right so i'm going to put this in a, in a tweet and it gives you a lifetime and a five-year risk for a specific patient and compares to the average risk as well 
And if the risk is above a certain number, which I think you told me was 29%? Yeah, I, I believe it was 29%. Okay. But uh, it, th- there's, I'm sorry, there are uh, different levels depending on on what the what the risk is. I'd have to go back and take a look at it. Mm. Okay. I think the risk was somewhere around 29, 30% or above. It, that patient would be considered, you know, less than a high enough risk that you would consider a supplemental testing, which would be something like maybe a breast MRI or an ultrasound. I would recommend you it's, talk to your radiologist about, or your breast imaging specialist about what they recommend yeah, it's, in that it's situation. Based on lifetime risk, it's less than 15%, 15 to 29, and then greater than 29%. We have two Chris's with us today, uh, Chris Chu and Chris Thrash. And PrEP was a big thing that was, again, being pushed. So you can go back and listen to our PrEP episode. And Chris, who are the groups that need PrEP? Just to, if we can re- remind, does yeah, Stuart, so, you have those? Yeah, I've got, I've got it right here. So it's men and women at risk through sexual exposure. So serodiscordant partners, serodiscordant partners, particularly in six months after HIV diagnosis and antiretroviral three, a treatment initiation if in the infected partner, multiple sec- sex partners, history of STIs and or transactional sex, uh, and also people who inject drugs. And PrEP should always be offered during periods of time when patients are at the highest risk. So that's when they have new partners, multiple partners trying to conceive, drug, alcohol use, etc. So to put it in terms that Paul said, it's way underused. It's like yeah. it's, oh, yeah. it's it's pretty inclusive criteria for who should be considered to get PrEP. And right. And then PrEPs, I you know they were in they they talked about PrEP in multiple uh, talks that I went to today. Um, in the ID updates, they talked about PrEP, about this BMJ article that came in December 2017. They said 51% reduction in infection in about like 11 studies that they looked at. Um, there's all these different um, programs in New York and San Francisco. The one in San Francisco, one in San Francisco is called Getting to Zero, about trying to make sure that it's more well-known so it's utilized better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dr. Thrash, Chris Thrash, uh, what we we had you uh, you went to a couple episode you went to a couple episodes yeah you went to a couple sessions you had some points that you wanted to point uh, to start with so what was diverticulitis the first one yeah I started the morning uh, went to a, a talk on uh, um, some clinical pearls on diverticulitis and just a few things that I took away I wasn't aware that the regular use of NSAIDs doubles your risk of diverticulitis so um, something to keep in mind when counseling your patients on the risk of NSAIDs. Uh, in addition, another th- pearl that um, was enlightening was uh, 40% of CT-confirmed con- diverticulitis is actually afebrile. Um, so they're probably missing uh, some cases out Rest. there. That's scary. Um, and then uh, finally, she uh, this, this wasn't part of her talk, but someone asked about an- which antibiotics to use for uh, uncomplicated diverticulitis. And I had been using in my practice a lot of amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulonic acid, um, and getting anecdotally good results, but she was advocating for ciprofloxacin and metronidazole. Uh, currently, there is some uh, E. coli coverage you don't get with the amoxicillin clavulonic acid. So we'll see. Uh, but with uh, FDA warnings about fluoroquinolones, that makes me a little bit nervous. Um, yes. Yeah. I still try to. I still try to avoid fluoroquinolones if possible. But I. I, I mean, the the warnings are are specifically like uncomplicated cystitis, right. acute bronchitis, sinusitis, stuff like that. So you can probably. I don't think you're going to get like sued for using it in diverticulitis, but definitely check for interactions and make sure they don't have myasthenia gravis, yeah. things <laughs> like that. The, the, the concerning thing in diverticulitis is a lot of these patients will have you know recurrence and yeah. they end up building. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics, and so if you're using ciprofloxacin cip- for right. for a right. long period of time, then of course, then you're increasing yeah. your risk. And, yeah. 
And talking about overutilizing fluoroquinolones in the outpatient setting, we, we talked about that a little bit, but one thing that might help guide your decision-making in that case was the, the whole discussion about procalcitonin. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think about that one, Chris? Chew? Chew man. Chew man. Well, I, I thought it was really interesting because uh, the, they asked, the angle that they, what they went with the talk today was it's used in the outpatient setting. So I think a lot of people are using it a lot more in the inpatient setting now, right. you know, trying to determine whether they should start antibiotics or probably there's more um, data to show that how when to stop antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember exactly the algorithm that they used, but I think things that are going to um, be barriers to use in the outpatient setting would yeah. be, do you have procalcitonin available to you in the outpatient setting? Yeah. How fast it'll take for it to come back? Obviously, if you don't have those, then you can't do it. And you're, you're going to want to get familiar with your, your lab's assay. Right. They'll probably suggest a cutoff for like starting, stopping antibiotics based on the levels. And, and the one thing that, that we talked about was the price of the procalcitonin lab, because that might be some barrier to someone, at least cognitively, they may think about that, but it's actually not that expensive comparatively, right? I think they said between 40 and 45 bucks. Yeah. But then if you compare it to how much antibiotics may actually right. cost if you decide to use them it's yeah. pretty comparable like and uh, complications of using antibiotics like what dr thrash is worried about right <laughs> okay dr thrash you you heard about a migraine treatment that people should not be using right right i w- we went to uh clinical pearls uh with dr singh um and she was mentioning this supplement called butterbur which actually has s- some good evidence behind um prevention of migraines but apparently if you get a unpurified form can cause hepatotoxicity so that was the the main pearl that i remembered there was a lot of she gave she went into pretty detail on migraines and stuff we've covered on other episodes but right. uh um, that was one thing that i, I don't and think since we, supplements since butterbur is a supplement <laughs> it's like how are you going to make sure that you get a pure form right. so right. You'd have to do some pretty good research. Uh, we, she did not recommend using it, so we don't no. have a like a specific brand to recommend to the audience. Yeah, and uh, yeah, anything else from that from that talk or the other talks you attended? The other um, the other thing from neurology, uh, I guess more, more of an, I guess an ER, uh, but I guess inpatient medicine uh, with thund- someone presenting with a thunderclap headache. You got the CT, you did the LP. It's not a subarachnoid hemorrhage. You're not done. She listed several things that, you know, you still need to get the MRI with contrast to real venous throm- uh, central venous thrombosis, mm. uh, a few other complications. I can't, I don't, didn't run them all down, but uh, don't stop with the uh, CT and the LP, but go ahead and get the MRI with, uh, with contrast. That person's probably staying the night. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Thunderclap headache. They're getting admitted. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know what your turnaround in your hospital for an MRI. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the last one we had that Actually, you. Actually, I had. A different talk with Dr. Samuels on neurology for the internist for Martin Samuels, and he he talked about headaches for about half the talk. And he's I saw him last year. He's an amazing speaker. And in terms of some practical tips, stuff that he brought up. So one of the, the sentences they'll never forget is he says the best thing you can do for a patient with a headache is to look them right in the eye and say, by the way, it's not a brain tumor. Because <laughs> and he made the, but you have to be pretty sure about that. But he made that really important point that if a patient is taking time off work. They're coming into your office and they're complaining of a headache. It's not a mild headache. Like if you tell them to take an NSAID, they have ibuprofen at home. They know to do that. If they're coming in, they're scared that something bad's going on. So reassurance is huge. And also, if you ask them to quantify their pain, it's going to be seven, eight, nine, or ten because they're at the doctor's office. There's no other reason for them to come in. He also made some great physical examination points. So for patients with headaches, examine the head. 
Um, patients appreciate that. Yeah, it's, you skip that a lot. So do a fundoscopic exam. Check visual fields because that's the one thing that patients can't report symptomatically for you. Patients who have migraines are going to have tenderness if you actually pull their hair. They're going to feel that more than someone who does not have migraines. And then check reflexes. They won't tell you that much, but patients feel like you're getting a really great exam if you're doing deep tendon reflexes when you're do- assessing for, for headache symptoms. So he, he recommends reflex stuff. What is this fundoscopic exam you talk about? <laughs> Did you tell us to pull the patient's hair? That's yeah, what he said. Hard as you can. <laughs> so, so shine Maybe a bright light in their there. eyes. Yeah. Pull their hair. They're going to have a headache when they leave. <laughs> and it's so super we're all weird. going to now pull the hairs of everyone. Yeah, and if you if you have a patient who has a tension headache and you punch them in the throat, they do not like that. So it's also <laughs> diagnostic. So. It's hundred percent sensitive. <laughs> okay, I think we're out of time here. We're going to get to some more sessions. Uh, let us know if you like this. If you don't, uh, we're going to do one more tomorrow. So you uh, <laughs> you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, but we say. will uh, we'll we'll be doing some highlights talks with some people who know a lot more than us uh, later later this week and be putting them out over the next couple weeks as well as some somewhat more traditional uh, type episodes. So look out for those. Again, I'm putting this up with minimal editing, so please uh, be gentle. (laughs) And that's a wrap. (laughs) This has been a surprisingly quick episode of The Curbsiders. Wow. (laughs) Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. It's okay. Uh, there will be no show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, <laughs> but you can get our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. I think most of the show notes for this one are all the tweets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, follow Dr. Brigham at Brigham SK on Twitter for uh, links from this, from this episode. <laughs> and uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto with... This is Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, why did you go first? This is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham here with two... This is Chris Thrash. And Chris Chu. Excellent. And good night. And good night. And thank you to all of our correspondents out there who uh, could not be with us at this, but uh, we miss you. Hope you sleep well. (laughs) 